0: that men think. We're just not always sure what they're thinking or why they're thinking the way they're thinking. You know, there are all kinds of stereotypes about guys, and and stereotypes abound in our culture about guys and the way they think. Here's the first stereotype we need to dispel this morning. Help. Homer, stop. stop. I know it's easy for your mind to wander. But I want you to really concentrate on me. The stereotype, men don't listen, men listen, we try, you know, it's, it's hard to listen, but we, we try as hard as we can, and it's not that we just click everybody off all the time, we do have things that we have to think about sometimes, but uh, it's basically a myth, but it's, it's, it's out there all the time. Here's another myth that's out there that we need to dispel this morning. Could switching to GEICO really save you 15% or more on car insurance? Does a former drill sergeant make a terrible therapist? And that's why yellow makes me sad, I think. That's interesting. You know what makes me sad? You do! Maybe we should chug on over to Mamby Pamby Land, where maybe we can find some self-confidence for you, you jackwagon! you? You know, and that's the stereotype of you know you got to be a man you got to be a real man. Roar, you know that was that old home improvement thing where the guy was always going. Hoo, 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 right, Tim the Tool Man Taylor. Um, that's a myth too. Really, I think this 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 one really resonates with me. It's from the it's from the movie Castaway. I think this is a lot closer to what's really going on inside a man's mind. And I know what I have to do now. You gotta keep breathing. Because tomorrow the sun will rise. Who knows what the tide could bring. I think men think a lot about tomorrow and what might just happen. Last year, I talked to you about inside a man's mind, and we started in Romans 7. Paul wrote, something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? Romans chapter 7 poses a war inside of a man's mind. The first thing inside a man's mind is a war. Then I said the second thing inside of a man's mind is where am I on the mountain? It's a question. Where am I on the mountain? Most men think they're either approaching the top of the mountain or possibly they are at the top. They've reached the pinnacle of their career, of their goals. Or they think they're at the bottom or even underneath the mountain, maybe having been buried by a rock slide or some other catastrophic life events. The real issue is not where you are on the mountain. The important question is, who is with you on the mountain? Who is with you? Who are you doing your life with as a man? Where are the guys that are are talking to you and, and you're hearing their stories and you're telling your story about life too? And then the third thing inside a man's mind is he thinks about what God might do with him. He thinks about what God might do with him. So this morning, let's take another look inside a man's mind. Genesis chapter 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, so there was no landscaping going on and no plant had yet sprung up, so there was no garden center down the road. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. So it wasn't just ground, and it wasn't just dirt. It was, it was kind of muddy. It was moist. It was, it was moldable. It was pliable. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. The word for ground in Hebrew is adama. You can see the word Adam in the word ground. And so what was Adam's name? Mud. (laughs) Mud guy. Dirt man. Dusty. Uh, You see, in a man's mind, he knows he is both made from common substance, And yet, he has an amazing connection with the eternal God. He knows this in his mind. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. He took his first breath. What did the first man see when he opened his eyes? What did he see? The way I see it, he looked right into the face of God. And he saw himself because God created him in his image. And that's a big part of what's going on inside of man's mind. He knows he came from someone and he struggles to reconnect to that earliest memory of the one who gave him life. There was no mother at that point. It's the first birth, but there's no mother present. There's just this, this man, this Adam and his father. This is the spiritual quest that has many names for mankind, but only one name for God. From God's perspective, there is only one way to ultimately and fully know him. I was having this discussion with someone not too long ago, and I was putting forth the Christian position that, that God was in Christ, redeeming the world to himself, saving the world, saving each and, and individual Person who was going to give their heart and their mind back to him, their, their very being back to him. And as I talked about this, uh, the, the other person was getting more frustrated and, and, and began to say, you have such a narrow position. It's just that one way for you. It can't just be that one way. It's too narrow. And so they began to build their position, and, and, and this woman began to explain how there are many, many ways to know God and how there are all these avenues you can go down and they're all going to finally get you there. And she got more and more forceful about her argument. And then she sort of got to the end of what she wanted to say. And God gave me something to say to her that I never said to anyone ever before. I said, so, so then, and I mean no disrespect by this. So then, your many things, your many ways, is your one way. Would you at least give me that? Your many ways is your one way. And she thought about it for a moment, and I have to give her credit for this. She said, she said, yes. She said, yes, That that is correct. You know, this week, I will turn 40, and I mean no uh, I mean, no joke by that. I will turn 40. I lived 20 years without knowing him. And 40 years ago in February of 1971, he invaded my life unexpectedly in a way that I could barely wrap my mind around. Suddenly, when I asked Jesus Christ to come into my life, I had, I had pursued all the other avenues I had tried to seek out truth and knowledge and understanding and philosophy. I had been down the road of religion. And to no avail, I came up empty. Everywhere I went, every road I went down ended up to be a dead end. And then suddenly, I was like the first man. I was like Adam, made out of simple substance. Suddenly, I woke up and there he was, his face looking at me and me understanding, oh my goodness, He is who He said He is. He is always and will always be the one true God. There is only this way. There is only one way to know Him, and that's a face-to-face personal relationship. I spent 20 years being frustrated And now 40 years really following him and learning more and more about him and knowing him and listening to him. And if you're here this morning and you are frustrated because you can't figure it out, I can tell you there is only one way to figure it out. And that's to accept him into your life as the one true God who revealed himself to mankind as Jesus Christ. The scripture goes on in Genesis the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. In a man's mind, is the drive to work and care for stuff. And in a man's mind, is the idea that there are rules and boundaries that he must live by. This is why Senior and Junior is such a popular TV show with American Chopper. There are rules that must be lived by. And even if you rail against the rules, you must answer to someone. These thoughts are all in a man's mind from the very beginning of time. He knows He is made from common substance. This is humility. He knows he is connected to the eternal God in some mysterious way. And this is servility. He knows he must serve the God who gave himself for him. He knows he must work and care for something. This is virility. This is strength, strength of character, strength of purpose to get up each day and do what is good and what is right for others. And he knows there are rules and boundaries in life that must be adhered to, and this is utility, humility, servility, virility, utility. Yes, I made them rhyme because I wanted you to remember them. I wanted you to think about them. These are the words that define the life of a man. When these components of a man's life are in order, a man's life is in order. When these components of a man's life are out of order, a man's life is out of order. As a man, you can ask yourself these questions to determine where you're doing okay and where you're not so okay. Humility. Do I humbly seek to serve others at home or at work or do I demand others serve my needs first? Do I act in ways that draw attention to myself and my gifts, or do I quietly employ my gifts to help others? Do I spend time mentoring other men, or do I judge the men around me because they don't know as much as I do? Servility. Do I actively seek ways to serve and honor God? Have I given my career and my resources into his hands to be used as he asks them of me? Am I finding satisfaction using my spiritual gifts in ministry and mission? Do I find ways to learn and apply biblical principles in my work and relationships so as to live a life pleasing to God? Virility, am I creating environments of integrity and care in my personal and professional relationships? Am I fulfilling all of my responsibilities in my job? are there places i'm tempted to cut corners do i go above and beyond what's generally expected in making life better for those i'm committed to utility is there any dichotomy between me at work and me at church am i accountable to others for living out the values i say i believe in are friends available to are friends able to ask me challenging questions is there any place i'm tolerant of temptation is there an order and structure to my days? Do I set realistic and appropriate boundaries between work and rest? As you grapple with questions like this and you find where your alignment is, you will know how you are doing. You will know these things that have been put in your mind since the very beginning of time. Inside a man's mind. What is he thinking? You know, the other day I was walking in a parking lot and it was icy because it had snowed uh, overnight on Wednesday. And so we had snow on Thursday and there was ice on Friday and it's Friday morning and I'm trying to cut through a parking lot and I'm just about to walk between two cars and I see a man, he's coming right at me. And so we kind of acknowledge each other as men sort of do, you know, just sort of little acknowledgement. Don't want to have too much acknowledgement, but little acknowledgement. And, And so then he happened to speak and I was surprised that he spoke and he said, it's gonna warm up today. And just as he said it's going to warm up today, I was about to agree and say, yeah, I think, and I think was the last thing I said, and then I fell. And, and I went flat out on the ice. I was gone. As far as he knew from the view that he had, the earth had opened up, and I had disappeared. <laughs> but his life was not in alignment And so this is what he did. This is very typical of guys. Okay, he was walking and this is what he did. You okay? No, I'm hurt. But I couldn't say, no, I'm hurt because I'm a man. I said, yeah. You know, I'm like, laid up. Now, if that, if that had been a woman, she would have run over. She would have called 911. The ambulance would have would have been there in like three seconds. They would have hauled me away. You know, but it's just, it's just different. You're trying to be in alignment with things that give you a bigger life, a life that God poured into you at the very beginning of time. The next big piece of a man's mind relates to one of the most important women he ever met, his mom, Genesis chapter twenty four Now Isaac had come from beer, Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, "Who is that man in the field coming to meet us?" You could almost hear her you know just Catch her breath right there. Who is that man? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. You can feel the romantic tension in the air right there. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah, and he married Rebecca. So she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is a love story as old as love stories come. This is Romeo and Juliet, Isaac and Rebecca, Rebecca and Isaac. This is Oklahoma, that story of Oklahoma. I can't do it, but Troy was doing it down at the Sandler Center the other day. It was just amazing, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, you see somebody, and, and this is Casablanca. This is Mrs. Doubtfire. Well, it's a, it's a stretch, but it is Mrs. Doubtfire. If you think about it, it's Mrs. Doubtfire. But inside of a man's mind is a mom. What, is, what does Isaac do? He's like so smitten by her, but he brings her to his mom. He wants his mom To smile. He wants his mom to embrace her. There are mothers in a man's mind. The first mother that you might encounter in a man's mind is the smother mother. This is the mother who over... Good day and God bless you. This is where we're getting into trouble now. Everybody buckle your seatbelts. The smother mother. She overly protects her children. She makes excuses for her children. She may lie to keep her child's reputation intact. She never really releases her child. Kevin Lehman says in his book, Seven Things He'll Never Tell You. Ever wonder why your husband might assume you'd cover up for his mistakes? Why you'd be okay with lying for him to save him from embarrassment? Take a look at his mother. Was she a smother mother? Was she his cover up? There's a Another mother that's possibly there living inside of a man's mind, the disciplining mother. This is a mother who creates the value of personal responsibility. She teaches natural and logical consequences. Well, you didn't do what you were supposed to do, and that's what happens when you don't do what you were supposed to do. She expects full effort and the honor of a promise given. She loves unconditionally and releases her child at the right time. This mother develops a man of character and courage. Does the man you're dating have a disciplining mother? If he does, your life will be a lot less complicated. Then there's the driving mother that possibly lives inside a man's mind. Kids must be busy, busy, busy. The family pace is frenzied. There's never a place to stop. We're going here, we're going here, we're doing this, we're doing that. Love is conditionally given relating to performance. Perfection must be achieved at all costs. And she hopes to drive the grandchildren the same way. If your husband's or boyfriend's schedule included a Monday through Sunday run of activities, practices, games, and projects, he may never have bonded with his family or seen downtime as normal and necessary. When you want together time, he might be heading on to the next project or the next responsible thing to do. You see, inside of a man's mind is a smothered, disciplining, or driving mother that he has to come to terms with, and you have to come to terms with, too. So the question isn't, what kind of man are you praying for, as much as it might be just, what kind of a mother-in-law are you praying for? There's one more thing inside a man's mind. One more thing. 1 Kings 18. The moment Ahab saw Elijah, he said, so it's you, it's you, old troublemaker. Oh, it's not I who has caused trouble in Israel, said Elijah, but you and your government. You've dumped God's ways and commands and run off after the local gods. And so here is the tension of this moment. Elijah is, is, a, is a man who has God in his mind and God in his heart. And he's going up against a corrupt government, a government that's turned aside from worshiping the true God of Israel. And they kind of just make things up. These are the, the cultural gods of the day that they worship. And so Elijah challenged the people How long are you going to sit on the fence? If God is the real God, follow him. If your gods are the real gods, follow them. Make up your minds. Nobody said a word. Nobody made a move. Scripture says. And you could again, you could you could feel the tension in the air. You could hear everybody for a moment just stop breathing. So then Elijah challenges them to to a, an event. He says, look, if you think you can make something happen, let's just go ahead and make it happen. You go ahead and get an ox and you cut it up and you lay it on the wood and you, but don't ignite it. And then you pray to your gods and see if you can make something happen. And if your god answers, then then that is, I believe that that's really who God is. And the people said, that sounds like a great event. We want to buy tickets. And so they all got together and the the false. Prophets all got their ox there, and they made a sacrifice. And it says in Scripture, they prayed, and they jumped, and they stomped on the altar. But nothing happened. By noon, Elijah has started making fun of them, taunting. Call out a little louder, he said. Maybe your God's off meditating somewhere, or maybe he's in a project somewhere. Maybe he's on vacation. You don't suppose he's overslept, or you Needs to be waked up. They prayed louder and louder. They cut themselves This went on well past noon. They used every religious trick and strategy they knew to make something happen on the altar, but nothing happened. Not so much as a whisper, not a flicker of a response. Well, there couldn't be because there was no one there, and Elijah called them on it. Then Elijah told the people, enough of that. It's my turn. Gather around. And they gathered. They were ready for something now. He then put the altar back together, for by now it was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Jacob, the same Jacob to whom God had said, From now on your name is Israel. He built the stones into an altar in honor of God. Then Elijah dug a fairly wide trench around the altar. He laid firewood on the altar, cut up the ox, put it on the wood, and said, Fill four buckets with water and drench both the ox and the firewood. Then he said, Do it again and they did it. Then he said, "Do it a third time." And they did it a third time. The altar was drenched and the trench was filled with water. This took a long time, so the tension is building and people are wondering, "What is he up to? This doesn't make any sense. You can't light something on fire that is drenched with water." When it was time for the sacrifice to be offered, Elijah the prophet came up and prayed, "Oh God." Just listen to how he prays, because God is in his mind. Oh God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, make it known right now that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I'm doing what I'm doing under your orders. Answer me, God. Oh, answer me and reveal to this people that you are God, the true God, and that you are giving these people another chance at repentance. You're giving them a chance to come back to you and to know you. Immediately the fire of God fell and burned up the offering, the wood, the stones, the dirt, and even the water in the trench. It was all gone. All you could do was smell the burnt remains of what had once been. The water was all just licked up. It was all gone. All the people saw it happen and fell on their faces in awed worship, exclaiming, God is the true God. God is the true God. Phillips Brooks wrote, someday in years to come, you'll be wrestling with the great temptation or trembling under the great sorrow of your life. But the real struggle is here now in these quiet weeks. Now it is being decided whether in the day of your supreme sorrow or temptation, you shall miserably fail or gloriously conquer. When was the last time You watched or listened to a story that wasn't about a man trying to do something great. There's a name for stories that aren't like that. We call them tragedies because the outcome isn't good. The man fails. Everything falls apart. He is sad and lonely in the end or he has lost his life or his purpose or vision for life. We long with all of our hearts to see a man do something wonderful like Elijah. Do something that turns the tide. Do something that tips the scales. The Bible is a book of stories about people who stood for God in the middle of a godless culture and won the day. Here's the key, men. God wants to be in your mind. He wants to help you cut through the clutter of manipulative manipulative relationships you call work. He wants to help you understand what he put in you from the beginning of time. He wants you to reach your full potential for unconditional love. He wants you to keep breathing so he can bring you a sail on the day you least expect it. And that's when you'll realize it was God in your brain the whole time, leading you to know who you really are and who he really is. And so finally, and so finally... The story of Elijah ties into a Darth Vader Super Bowl commercial. What's inside a man's mind is just what you saw. He wants to use his power to do something great in life just like that little boy knew inside. He was built for doing something great. A man always remembers that he was built for something that's great. He's supposed to give his life fully and totally to something that changes everything, that makes a difference in the world. He doesn't need a monument with his name engraved in stone, but he wants the world to know that he was here, that his life mattered, In the beginning, God breathed the breath of life into a man. But in the end, it's not the breaths you take, but the moments you create that take your breath away that will really be your life. The breathing in and out that gets you through the day isn't what it's all about. You just might miss the point trying to win the race it's not just the breaths you take but the moments you create that take your breath away that's what's inside a man's mind god calling him to be great all the time dear heavenly father Culture tells us what's inside of a, a man's mind, and there are all kinds of stereotypes that try to define that. Books are written about business that say, this is what is really going on and what's really happening." And yet what hangs in the balance is always eternity. What hangs in the balance is always really and we know this, the meaning and the purpose of our lives. From the very beginning you put humility in the mind of a man you put utility in the mind of a man you put virility in the mind of a man you put a deep calling and sense of purpose for what he is able to become oh heavenly father allow us allow us the honor and the privilege to have our minds fired by your Holy Spirit that in the deepest recesses of our hearts, we would want to stand for you in the middle of a world that doesn't understand you and say, let me show you the God that I know who is alive and who lives in me and through me and who will do great things if we believe in him. Father, we give you this time. Press your truth into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.